Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Trent here. I know I said at the end of the last episode that this week we'd be back in the studio with Robin and Beck Hill sitting in for Josie for a couple of episodes with some special guests. But as it turns out, uh, I've made a liar of myself, not not knowingly, uh, but that's what's happened because this week's episode is a special episode that we recorded mostly at Latitude this past weekend, focusing on one single book which was Arthur C. Clarke's book uh, written in 1986, July 20, 2019, which is all his visions for the future of what the world might be like on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So since we were at Latitude on that particular day, we thought we would chat to lots of different people there about that particular book. So this episode features Robin and Helen Chersky and Chris Lintott, Kevin Fong and Susie Imber. And also, if you are a Patreon subscriber, firstly, thank you very much. Secondly, you can become one by going to patreon.com slash bookshambles. If you do pledge to support us, there's an extended version of this episode where we uh, have bonus Hannah Critchlow for you, where we chatted to her about the book as well. And then since we were in the studio yesterday, uh, anyway, or yesterday as I am saying this, we chatted to Beck and uh, science fiction author Peter Hamilton, who was in the studio recording an episode that's going to come out later in the year about the book as well. So we hope you enjoy this special episode. Robin will explain it a bit more in a minute. Quick thank you to everyone who came to all our different shows at Latitude and Blue Dot over the weekend. Really nice to catch up with and meet lots of you after the shows. We really appreciate you coming along And if you were at Latitude and you came to the Space Shambles show with Robin and Susie and Helen Sharman, you would have heard Robin announce that we are coming back to the main auditorium at the Royal Albert Hall in 2020 with a brand new big massive bonkers show. It's called Sea Shambles. It is going to be anchored by Robin with Helen Chersky and Steve Backshall and we have got many many brilliant secret guests lined up we've got some spectacular stuff going on we're basically turning the entire Albert Hall into an underwater uh, scape that's not what I mean but you'll buy a ticket come along and you'll see our tickets are on sale this Friday for the general public from the Albert Hall and the Cosmic Shambles website it's going to be our biggest show ever so do come along to that That is enough of me. On to this week's episode. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Uh, Strokes, possibly science shambles. It's a little bit of both, in fact, which was uh, down to the fact that I bought a book a while ago, which was by Arthur C. Clarke. It was called July the 20th. 2019 and it was his predictions from 1986 uh, about what that day would be like and I was at the Latitude Festival where I really wanted to do a live show about this because there's only one day that you can properly do this Uh, unfortunately there wasn't time so instead I spoke to a group of scientists uh, about 
what they had imagined it would be like and also how good had Arthur C. Clarke's predictions, which are predominantly quite optimistic predictions, been. And so before you hear that, in fact, I'm still in the studio, Book Shamble Studio, uh, with Peter F. Hamilton and with Beck Hill, and I'm going to ask them a quick question. So July the 20th, 2019, if we go back to your childhoods, where what would you imagine Arthur C. Clarke was predicting for that day? Um, I can tell you he'd covered sex, infrastructure, uh, travel, uh, space exploration, the whole kit and caboodle. He probably said you might have a computer in your house. They might get small enough to be in your house. Not far off. In fact, he's even better than that. He actually get, he kind of does have a sense of the internet about uh, his predictions. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, that's he actually interesting. says that in, in 2006, there may be a rebellion by the young against computers uh, because he says they go in like, like with uh, the Woodstock generation, there's kind of cycles of rebellion against. But. And that's the one bit that he kind of gets right in one way, because, of course, around that time, there certainly was a lot more uh, on-street activity against capitalism. But, of course, actually, it was using computers quite a lot. But it's quite... So that's not bad. Mm. Beck? Did you have any ideas about hygiene? I feel like hygiene's one that often gets looked over. There's not You know, like, much... were toilets different or teeth brushing? They haven't really changed in the last... You know, well, the nearest we have is. Do you remember they used to years. sell those things in toilets, which were supposedly called chewable toothbrushes? Oh, which they were obviously still, yeah. for people who suddenly realised that their halitosis had reached a, a point. I should say they sell them in public bathrooms at services, not in toilets. Oh, I, I, I see them. Well, the one I bought. Oh, bloody! <laughs> oh, you're right. Oh God, that's disgusting. Um, so no, there's not much. There is some interesting sex stuff. Where he has this beautiful uh, um, kind of uh, Lonely Hearts advert. Well, in fact, you know what? I'll let Helen Chersky tell you about that. Anyway, this was at the Latitude Festival, and this was on July the 20th, 2019, where we talked about Arthur C. Clarke's book, July the 20th, 2019. I hope you enjoy it. The uh, backstage at uh, Latitude Festival, which is why you can hear all manner of jazz noodling coming across the uh, midget mosquito filled lake, which they have here. Um, and I was Chris Lintott, and, and I'm not going to show him yet the book that we're going to talk about, which, which is is this book uh, by Arthur C. Clarke, which is called The 20th of July 2019. And it's Arthur C. Clarke imagining, and, and being fair to him as well, he's not like saying this will happen. He's looking at the technology that was kind of, you know, I think imagining technology available at that point. This was written in 1986. Uh, and just imagine the possibility. So the first thing that he does talk about, he, he starts off in space because, of course, he knew. I mean, this, uh, why, I presume, why wouldn't you start in space? Of course, always start in space. And the uh, and I think I presume he chose the date because it was the fiftieth. That's right. I, I, yeah. I, I imagine that's why. Well, and he knew that there'd be a bunch of people gathered in a field listening to some strange religious well, music that's in the background. The weird thing. He actually has one chapter where he goes, and Chris Lintop will die from mosquito bites. Yeah, uh, again, and then be consumed by now uh, cannibal sheep uh, with their lust for flesh, dyed pink. Um, the uh, and he he believes there would have been well he hopes there would have been a lunar base in his idea, which is he obviously talks about the fact that there was this strange period of of you know post nineteen seventy two. 
Yep, where, end of Apollo. Yeah, end of Apollo, and and I think a lot of people, and I'm, I'm sure you've had these conversations with people who work for NASA, they felt that not enough was being done, and That's a lot right. of the projects that were being done, they were kind of interesting, but you know, as you know, Buzz Aldrin always he believes we should have been on Mars by now. That's right. I, 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 I talked to Gene Cernan, who was the last man on the moon, who just who said, how does it feel to be the last man on the moon? And he said, it's really annoying. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but that was pretty much the answer, because he felt we should be back, there should be a base, there should be tourism and all, all of this. Because when did they know? Because that was, was it about Apollo 14, where they basically said, yeah, we've got three when more missions left? It, and there were it, a few quite annoyed astronauts. Well, they, they, were, they were in blocks, so 11, 12, 13 were supposed to be the, the landings, then 14, 15 were together, and then 16, 17 were supposed to be the extended science missions that they'd planned 18, 19, 20, and they cancelled those pretty quickly. And suddenly you had a bunch of astronauts who realised they weren't going to fly, or they weren't going to go back, or they weren't going to drive the lunar rover, which I know some of them were pretty jealous of, because that looked a lot of fun. Um, and, and yeah, that was the, the programme, and it, they didn't immediately move on to anything else. It wasn't as if, now Mars, or whatever. Mm. There was sort of ten years of soul-searching while what became the space shuttle programme sorted itself out. So, do you think... I mean, this idea of Arthur C. Clarke's that there would be... He says, you know, it's only at the beginning of, of, of population of the moon, but the idea of a lunar base in 2019, do you believe that in terms of logic and the technology that we had, there is no reason at that point to think that there should not have been? I think that's right. You need three things to end up back on the moon. One is the technology, and I think we, they could have built on what they did with Apollo. Um, you could imagine depositing small bits of a base and slowly building something up. That, that was definitely doable. Um, but you also needed the appetite for risk because the Apollo missions were incredibly dangerous. We sort of forget that now because we tell the Apollo 13 story and it all ended well and so on. Um, but there was a large solar flare in between two of the Apollo missions that would probably have killed the astronauts if they'd happened to be on their way, I think between 16 and 17. Um, and of course, the, the tech they were using wasn't um, guaranteed to bring them back safely and there wasn't a rescue plan so I think the appetite for risk went pretty quickly and the third thing you need is the money so you needed the politicians to to keep the, the, the money tree on and Apollo was people argue about quite how expensive it was but it it's almost as expensive as the American military is today so that's a pretty big chunk of government spending and that got turned off almost almost immediately um, if you were a proper historian I think you'd look at, look at the economic conditions in the early 70s and realise that what really happened was the politicians stopped wanting to pay for space do you think this is towards the end of the book, in fact right at the end of the book Arthur C. Clarke talks about hopefully a sense that there was less and less of a need for the United Nations that he in terms of his optimism was that national boundaries would become hazier and hazier. And I was thinking, I was writing a piece the other day where I was thinking about Gil Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon. Yeah, I was thinking you know, about that this morning. And, and I wonder about the fact that, because Rusty Schweikart and various others have said that, you know, the most important moment of Apollo may well have been Apollo 8, may have been the picture Earthrise. Yes. Even more important than actually landing on the moon, that, that image. And that to me seems, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts, that, that Whitey on the Moon looks at the idea that you know, here are all these people living in poverty. Here are all these divides that there are, people in squalor, and there's Whitey on the moon. And But there's another side. As I thought about it more, I thought one way you could say, yes, that's a waste of money when people are starving. Another way, those images, that possibility, and the fact that, you know, many of the, the Apollo astronauts will talk about the fact that when they toured the world, everyone always said, we, 
we went to the moon. We that there was suddenly there is a slight hazing of national boundaries at the point of something. And immense. you know so, the plaque says we came in peace for all mankind. Mm. All right, signed by Richard Nixon, but never never mind. Oh. But but I was going to say I was looking at the the Times um, editorial from just after the moon landings this morning, and I was I was really shocked. It's got the sentence. Obviously, I'm reading. Um, it's a this. This landing is a reproach. The nation which personifies this and the other advances is unable to solve social problems, which should perhaps be simpler but are but are harder. So even at the time, there's this sense of a contrast between, you know, getting into space and and, and what's going on at home. Um, it was a nationalistic event. They went because they wanted the American flag mm. on the moon. So I think people talk about the. That, that sense of national borders not being visible in that photo and I, people have said everything from you know, wanting to send politicians into space and sometimes leave them there and sometimes just have them have that moment um, and, and there was an influence but the reason Apollo happened was to get the American flag there mm. before the Russian flag and it's quite hard to have a transcendental moment of post-nationalistic mm. bliss when you're uh, pilot in the US Air Force putting your country's flag on undiscovered te territory so I think it's always been nuanced whether we should have spent more money on on things at home you know Apollo was expensive but it wasn't the most expensive thing the government does and I think and, and the inspirational value of, of science and exploration and space you know more more than anyone uh, I, I think it, it's, it's one of the reasons we want a civilization and we want people we, we want to go and explore um, and I genuinely think that does make it better for, for everyone here. It'd be nice if we could fix a few problems around here as well. But, but going into space is a, a core part of what we should be doing as, as humans. When people do say a thing about what you know, wasted money or whatever, and we could have solved this, you go, "There's an enormous number of things that we're funding now That's right. that are really do not in any way have the same uh, level of, of, of possibilities or, or pragmatism or any uh, of those things." And, and so, so. Maybe if you're really worried about that, don't immediately look at the, at, at the, the grand project. There may be many other things That's that right. your government are squandering pointless money on, or indeed tax breaks and sure. hidden all of those sure, things. But, but also, I that. think people forget that you don't you don't get to the moon by taking the money with you. Mm. The money stays here on Earth, yeah. right? So what you're funding is your high tech industry, your education system, um, the capability of your country with a robust space program to do things like. Uh, high-tech manufacturing is much higher so actually it's not that you you don't pile the money up into a Saturn V sized pile set fire to it and magically appear on the moon it's not you the KLF no 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 yeah. that's right I mean they did not go to the moon as far as I know uh, when they burnt that cash but but that, that that's exactly right the money's here and it and it, 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 it primes the industrial pump and and, and so on um, so I think that's important. People forget that. I think they really think we're up there throwing. Neil Armstrong was up there throwing dollars to the to the lunar Denzians up, up there. Now I know you're not 50 yet, but I, I'm going to ask you: where, the 10 year old you, mm. are you able to remember where you might have imagined human beings were? You know, obviously in, in terms of your, your interests and in terms of what you were reading as, uh, as 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 a child, where? did you think we might have been at this point? I, I think I spent a lot of time imagining space stations and it just being routine that we were in orbit. I think that comes from the first crewed mission I can really remember watching and paying attention to avidly was the repair of the Hubble Space Telescope, which had been launched with this misshapen mirror. And, and there were all these amazing pictures and, and little clips on the news of people 
obviously working in space with tools and building a thing and fixing a telescope. And that just seemed so real. It seemed obvious to me that if you could fix a telescope, you can build a hotel or you can yeah. you know, build a science base in orbit. So I, I, I just thought getting to near space, to low Earth orbit, would just be routine. And I would be very disappointed. The 10-year-old me would be very disappointed to discover that we're not there yet and that I haven't been to space and that that's probably not going to happen. There are so there were so many books growing up, weren't there? These wonderful, like the Terran Space Authority, where you buy a catalogue of all the you know the spaceships from 2000 AD to 2100 AD. That's all right. Of these different yeah. ideas, and I've got a big book somewhere of, of, of space weapons. You know, oh, oh yeah, the uh, that, that that explains a lot about you, I think. What what sort of like lasers and stuff? Oh What's yeah, I just love it. You know, and the Defate Book of Space Hardware, right? Which was yeah. a catalogue. Uh, a catalogue of various different not, not all of them destructive, some of them very positive but, and they were all inspired by different kind of science fiction books, all of these uh, Amazing. So I, I love, I used to sit every single uh, Friday night when I was allowed to watch telly, while I was allowed to watch Sherlock Holmes movie on BBC Two, I would always draw exactly the same rocket that I would design and I would have all the different little areas where the bunk beds would be and right, where there'd be a yeah. little kitchen did it have there a name? And then did you, what was the rocket called? No, I never did, it, it was always it, it was a rocket that was designed so it could also burrow directly into the middle of a planet as well upcoming useful yeah, yeah. I think. yeah no they haven't built that yet no actually. actually it's quite badly designed I really gave almost no space to the engine and then right <laughs> at the end I think maybe it could just be put in the drill itself but that wouldn't work at all I mean that's, that's one of the reasons I didn't go into it that's more, more, more or less what they did with the Enterprise in Star Trek as well we've got a nice saucer shaped thing and then we need to put engines on somewhere I'm gonna, you're going to get angry notes from tweets from people <laughs> who, who want to tell me that this is the perfect design but it's not because it's aerodynamic why do you need the Enterprise to be aerodynamic spaceships should be just like big that's cubes. such a great thing isn't it when people suddenly go how could all of these lumpy things like people always talk about the fact you know that the lander looks so odd yeah yeah and you yeah. go but it doesn't have to i was just looking at have you heard about dragonfly yet do you know so this is nasa's next mission they just they just picked their next big planetary mission and it's a quadcopter that's going to go and fly around on titan and it is so it's this amazing thing titan's this world of a methane atmosphere and nitrogen or methane rain and a nitrogen atmosphere and lakes that come and go and all sorts of places and we're going to hop around with it with this little robot quadcopter which is amazing and it looks ugly it's just not aesthetically pleasing at all because it's designed to work in an atmosphere that mm. isn't ours and so it has different properties but you look at it it looks like it looks like somebody got a couple of skis and stuck them to a shopping trolley and then put maybe some little drone um blades on top of it but it's a beautiful idea but you shouldn't expect these spacecraft to look nice it's fantastic the um so 2069 the uh it's interesting there's a uh, a, a film director called damon gamma who made a film called uh, that sugar uh film and, and he's made a new one all about uh if we use all the technology that actually that we have already without no, no no new particular innovation where we'll be and we use it to deal with climate change where we'll be in 2040 because for him his kids see everything as so negative and he wanted to make a film right. goes, you know what let's have a look at this kelp farm that they put off here in New Zealand so moving even further to 2069 your Arthur C. Clarke predictions for okay well you'll still 20th be 20th of July 2069 so, so first of all you'll be here in a tent doing latitude for starters. Brian will only be in his early 20s by then right. as he and continues we'll, his uh, Mork and Mindy style reversal that, of that, That's right. So that's obvious. I think that there will be people um, visiting, if not living on the moon, but I don't think it will be governments. I think it will be like 
middle-aged bankers going to climb Everest now and standing in that queue on the top of the world. I think there'll be queues of people filing past Tranquility Base and calling themselves astronauts. Because I think we'll get the appetite for risk back by allowing people to just go and do it themselves. Mm. And it's not the government's fault if your rocket one in a hundred times doesn't make it back. So I, I think it will be a tourism destination. I think people will go, and I suspect that that will be about it for crewed spaceflight. But I think we'll have a network of robotic spacecraft stationed across the solar system, talking to each other, sending back high bandwidth information. Sort of the interplanetary internet will exist. And my guess is that if you want to explore Mars, we'll be doing it in virtual reality, and we'll be you could choose to go and sit at Curiosity Base or whatever in Gale Crater and, and wander around. And we'll do it that way rather than sending ourselves somewhere unless you're an adventurer with, you know, a few bazillion space dollars or whatever. Right, now I'll give you uh, three other chapter choices from Arthur C. Clarke's book and you can pick which one you want to predict. Do you want to predict education, health or sex? Education, right? I think. So the Oxford Physics course won't have changed we'll still be teaching 19th century physics, moving on to quantum physics eventually. So that's easy. Um, I think we'll have gone backwards. So we will have gone through a phase where everything's digital and we're all plugged in, but education comes and goes in, in fashion. So I think somebody in the 2040s will reinvent the book as a means of education and kids will be it'll be the only place where kids are issued with books and they have to leave their devices and unplug. And I think there'll be this sort of focus thing. I think they'll be learning much more though about um, the building blocks in the modern world so this will be like proper IT you'll start programming early you might learn it from a book but you'll start programming early and you'll build stuff and control robots and so on and that will be school and uh, everyone until they get to about the age of 17 will think it's really boring that they've got to go to school and program a robot again <laughs> Chris Entot thank you very much pleasure Alan Chesky, you've got the uh, the book in front of you, obviously, Clark's July 20, I have. 2019. It's brilliant. It is a lot of fun, isn't it? I it's, mean, it's bigger not... than your... Th when you said it was a book, I thought you were, you know, slim paperback, mm -hmm. and actually it's this great big thick hardback with pictures inside. It's, it's one of those lovely, you know, those 70s, 80s books, lots of nice colour plates in there. Yes, and, it's very thoroughly you know, done. But, but both reality and imagining of robotic possibilities and, and space possibilities. But it's brilliant. So the first thing, in the acknowledgements, he lists all the experts that were involved, and he clearly did his research... Um, the experts, some of them, were medicine, education, which is brilliantly spelt wrong. <laughs> I just noticed. Um, space war, movies, sports, housing, office, sex and death. So it covers all the important bases. <laughs> so what was the first thing that I've, you've, you've heavily bookmarked it? It's very hard. But... Um, so I are these your pencil marks yeah, in yeah. the book here? So some of them I noticed the same things, and these are just kind of random things. But there's this amazing quote here from Thomas Gold. So he's quoting somebody else. He said Apollo was like buying a Rolls Royce but leaving it in the garage because you can't afford the gas. Yeah, it's brilliant, such isn't it? Yeah, a, such a succinct way of, um, you know, you spend all this money and then it just sits there going, oh well, there there it is. We did it. Tick that box. Um, that but, is so, talking about that with Chris Linton earlier, and, and that is such a, a to have it's it's that awful thing, isn't it? To have that technology at hand, to have that possibility, to have all of those people who were training, you know, astronauts who who were ready, they had been through everything, and then they're told a year because that's that's one of the things that people often forget, isn't it? Which is, it was such a short period of time. Yeah. Over just yeah, over yeah. three years, you go from those very first, you know, uh, 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 Apollo missions. 
and and then 1969 in space and three years later the final mission and that's it and it's only so i was looking at a list of the missions and the amount of time they actually spent you know walking about on the lunar surface and it's it's like 22 hours between yeah. all of them from apollo 11 to apollo 17 so it's less than a day that humans have spent standing on the moon it's so tiny so tiny um but I, the, so the, the thing that is brilliant about the book is it goes through all these these different things imagining the future and actually i thought the bits i've because you know you sort of gave it to me it said read that we were talking about it. and of course I haven't read all of it um, but there's there's a lot of really sort of believable details in here that there's there's all these little things I mean the, the bit about the education thing here um, someone who said that uh, so this was written in 1986 predicting tomorrow we'll have more home-based schools more private and religious schools more schools funded by zealots and more diversity overall and you know that's pretty much bang on the money yeah <laughs> 30 years ago um, and so it's really you know are we this predictable that someone could just because I haven't seen anything that's really been the medicine. Ones well, he's very bit, um... careful, isn't he? I mean, I think that's you know he talked about that bit, that bit of really making the the, the enormous leap yeah. of, and, and that's one of the problems, isn't it? Which he also said about predicting the future. Is it, either you predict the future, and it's actually so evidence based that it's kind of well, yeah, obviously, obviously going to do that, or it's so mad that the likelihood is everyone, nah, that's you know, and, and people just see you as a lunatic. But then there's these very there's a line here that someone has said, my grandchild's best friend will probably be a computer. Yeah. And that that's so close. And mm. the thing is that if you'd said that five years ago, people would be like, well, maybe Facebook's going to do They do spend big, a bit of time you know? on their computers. And now there is a lot of sort of technophobia like that, yeah. you know, real worry that social media... So it's really interesting how... How do you feel about that? That's interesting because I was talking about that with someone the other day and they were saying how worried they are about their kids and the, the way that they, they use their phone or whatever it was. And I said, but when I was growing up, it was the same with television. There was a still, you know, this idea, I think we look back at ourselves as if we were some, you know, pristine, we see ourselves as some little Lord Fauntleroy character when we redraw our past and forget the way we just sat in front of absolute crap. Any time the screen shone, we were drawn to it. Sometimes we would sit there just watching teletext for two (laughs) hours, you know. Well, you may have done that. (laughs) Well, that's why I'm so very well informed because of page 157. (laughs) But it's, you know, those, so do you, do you, when you see these kind of moments where everyone, it's not just children, of course, it is, it's cross-generational now where everyone looks towards their phone. I think there's something where something will swing back because I'm, I'm not a technophobe, you know, I spend time on my phone, but I also, because of the expeditions I know have done, know what it's like to spend time without your phone and I know what it's like to come back into the world. And it's really horrible. It's really horrible that your phone is this obstacle between you and everything you want to do. And you sort of, people relearn social skills in that environment. And the thing is that, I, you know, social Social stuff on phones I think is brilliant for all kinds of things it's great for logistics it's great for people who maybe can't communicate as easily you know perhaps they're deaf or they're blind or there's some something that means that that's a really useful tool for them but I also think that if that's the only thing you do then you're risking losing a lot and I sometimes wonder with my students whether they are becoming less good at having face-to-face conversations because they don't have to they can send a message or an email they don't often have to walk into someone's office and have a difficult conversation and and I so that worries me a bit. I think it, as an addition, that's brilliant. But there is a little bit about not losing the social skills because we are a social uh, animal. And you know we do have this thing that we we live in the age of loneliness. Society is fetishized. Like I'm saying, um, isolation. You know you want bigger, thicker walls so you can't hear anyone. You want to live far away from other people. You want to set yourself apart. 
And then it comes a surprise that everyone's lonely. You know, that if you live in a big city, you can not have a proper conversation with someone for days. Mm. And so... And yet peace is very hard to find. I mean, that's the thing I remember. I can't remember which book I was reading recently where it was talking about the idea that very often the only places you can find silence are expensive places. Like if, if, if you're if you're travelling first class on the train, if you're if, you, if you're able to go to one of the fancy airport lounges, you know, if, if you have enough money to buy a house where, in fact, the insulation is enough that when you do close the door... So, so there's also the other yeah. thing where we, we are both isolated but surrounded by noise. Clutter. There's a lot yeah. of clutter. Um, and that was also hard to come back to, you know, and I was only at sea for two months. It's not like it was a, the last time. It was only not like a long period of time. But it, every time I go, it gets worse. And it, and the, it's really hard to deal with the world. And also the other thing is that people don't say little things. So our our communication, I think, now is very functional. Mm. Do, you, do you, where are we going? What time are we going there? What are we doing? Like, we have to be doing a thing. And what was notable at sea was that we would say things, we would sort of, there was a low level of conversation and it wasn't really about the content, it was about checking other people were okay. And, you know, so there were little questions. And also because if you're in an extreme environment, little things become big things. If someone has a wet sock, you know, here in a field of latitude, that's just a minor inconvenience. If you're somewhere where it's minus 14, that becomes very serious quite quickly. So you're constantly checking and you're talking about the minutiae that sound very boring, but actually all you're saying to someone is, are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay? What's your mental state? What's your, are you tired? Are you cross? Are you grumpy? Are you hungry? Can I do something to help? But what you're physically saying is, um, is your shoe okay? Can I help you with that? You know, you're saying these little things. And I, when I came back, I remember walking into a badminton club and I walked off court and I said something about my sock, you know, something wrong with my sock. And they looked at me like, do you want to do something about that? And I was like, no, I, I'm, just, I'm just telling you about my sock because that, I just, it's a connection. It's yeah. not about the information. And I think that the thing about this, the sort of social media world is it encourages sort of functional. You don't get the eye contact. You don't get the body language. Those little, the connections that are not about the information connections all about information now and there's a lot of human connection which is not about information not well it removes the dimensions doesn't it that's why so many people become it's what we were talking about in fact and then the the car up here wasn't it which is you know so much becomes hero or villain yeah and and the kind of the the the, the general foibles of humanity are erased nuance is lost and yet nuance is what makes life you know that's what life is made of that's the that's why it's interesting to be human because otherwise we might all just have the robots um, and you know it's, I'm just I'm carrying on flicking through the book because mm. I think there's fun things one thing I'm very happy about I'm a badminton player and he has written a paragraph about space minton instead of badminton um, that is sure to be a hit in orbiting colonies uh, the net stre- stretched against across the center of a transparent sphere would have a hole and the uh, shuttle will go flying through the hole. So he's basically reinvented Pong for badminton players in space, which I <laughs> And that's the one of the things that you know, hasn't happened at all. We cannot, I cannot, my badminton club does not have a space wing. What would you call it? Section. <laughs> Anyway, what you uh, no, I just like the fact that one of the things that he says is, is a pity about the lack of lunar bases is the fact that still one of the great killers is gravity. And, and he's talking about the fact that, you know, people living for longer, the idea because uh, the heart, the pressure on their heart, that, that they would be able yeah. to. Uh, and, and at the same time, he said, you know, there's a relative of mine who fe- fell, fell and that was it. And she yeah. was old. Yeah. So, you know, the so, lowering so gravity, gravity may well save us, yes. Yeah, the thing that holds us to Earth is suddenly seen as a hazard. That's yeah. that's health and safety gone mad, that is. 
Um, but Beware, you are moving into a gravity <laughs> zone. Whoa! <laughs> but that is, I mean, there are these questions about that. It, it, it will inevitably be a spa. That the second thing built, if, if humans ever go to the moon, I think Chris was talking about tourism, is 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 a spa, right? Mm. There'll be somebody, whether it's rel- actually medically useful or not, someone will turn it into a spa experience. Um, and if we ever do go to Mars, you know, there was this conceit that it was for for all mankind it is definitely going to be for the privileged few whatever happens next we can't even pretend it's going to be for all mankind and that changes space i think so this this the one thing that is very the one thing i haven't seen in flicking through this book is any discussion of the the split between the haves and the have-nots yeah and that's that's almost the biggest feature of our society now and you know it 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 comes as a consequence of a lot of other things and it's the one thing that here He's sort of assuming, yes, there'll be richer people and poorer people, but I haven't seen anything that says there will be the billionaires and there will be the billion people who will live on two dollars a day. Line, if I, sorry, I just keep, uh, keep, keep talking. I find that there's there's something in terms of his, uh, which, which is, is not. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because when he talks about healthcare and things like that, you know, he. he doesn't predict the fact that over 60% of people in America will go bankrupt trying to handle their, yes. you know, he sees uh, there's this lovely quote uh, politics and economics are concerned with power and wealth, neither of which should be the primary, still less the exclusive concern of full grown men and so that's one line it's only a t- you know but that one bit yeah. where you go somewhere underneath, and I, I agree it does seem to me that it's a future a lot of that future is still, it, it's presumed, perhaps it's, it's a presumption that we're going to get to uh, at least an equality of, 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 of the possibilities of income, that yep. all of these things will be accessible. Exactly. Um, and it, I think, I mean, maybe in a way it's hard to be a sci-fi, it's, it's the, one of the most depressing things that happens, but, but it, a lot of the ideas in here, I think, would be, you can see them being the, uh, the privilege of the rich. So there's, I, I got towards the back of the book, uh, there is the chapter on sex, which is very funny, I have to say, in in many in many ways. Um, but what it does highlight, actually, is how this, more than any other chapter, shines a spotlight on humans and what we care about, what we think is funny, and how much of this is cultural. Um, and just to give you, there's, he's written a fake personal ad from The Village Voice, July 20th, 2019. And I'll read the whole thing because it's quite funny. Uh, married white female, 40, seeks well-endowed SWM. I don't actually know what that is. Do you know what that is? Single white male. Okay, maybe, still racist then. Uh, 18 to 28, uh, for three-month intimate companionship, my husband's hormone treatments, in brackets, he's six months pregnant, have put him out of commission temporarily. You take care of me, I'll take care of you. Electrostimulation, okay, as is drug-enhanced orgasm, but prefer partner with original equipment rather than implant. Send photo and vaccination certificate to Box yes. 22. It's the vaccination certificate. <laughs> vaccination is interesting because at one point he talks about that there's, there's again an imagined when he does these like like that moment where he imagines someone's diary, right. and there's an idea of, for instance, a vaccination against schizophrenia. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which I found that was in, intriguingly kind of well it's interesting isn't it because there's this there is a lot of debate about you know how much the genetic factors and environmental factors and how much is just random bad luck and there are i mean there was a, that story the other day wasn't there that anorexia might have um some genetic composite genetic component yeah, you know it, yeah, so i, I didn't and, read the story i saw the headline I've but but it's a really fundamental shift in how people think about that disease and it's always been a fight for uh, anorexic people and those who know them to, to say you know they're not it's not their choice it's not like they're they're sort of choosing but they're choosing because of what's going on in their head and th- this idea that it's 
a disease, you know, something, I mean, you have to define what, what is wrong, you know, how do you define wrong in a human, right? You know, some of it might be beneficial, but, but this idea that actually then, you know, we are chemical organisms and maybe there are bits of brain chemistry or things that maybe you could shift. It's, so it, I, don't, I don't know how likely that is, but it does seem that understanding where diseases come from might well mean that maybe you could be vaccinated against things. And it maybe might not be a vaccine as we understand it today, mm. but some, the idea of uh, a treatment which then makes you less likely to get something in the future, maybe that, maybe that is possible. And maybe it's an extension of you know, lifestyle choices. You know, we should all eat more fruit and do more exercise. And maybe just the next thing is that you, you take more of a particular type of vitamin and, and you're less likely to get schizophrenia or something. I don't know. Well, there was Nathan Filer, uh, who wrote Shock of the Fall uh, and, and worked as a psychiatric nurse. His, his most recent book is a, is a non-fiction book about schizophrenia, about the idea that actually it, it's an umbrella term for many, many... And within the book, he talks about the fact that one of the problems of dealing with an issue such as that, which is there is not enough looking at, hang on a minute, let's have a look at what was going on in this person's life. Let's have a look at their history. Let's have a look at all of the different things that were going on that have now led them to this point yeah. of, of the problems within their mental health. But it, not enough care. A bit, you know, in some ways in that book where we were just saying that the, the, the lack of the, the idea of the, the different levels of... of uh, uh, advantage or disadvantage people have but he, he says that's always that, that but the interesting thing about is that is that it links very directly into empathy and we were also talking about empathy earlier and the thing is that if you if you look at someone who's maybe just stolen something from you and you go oh well maybe or you someone tells you a bit about them maybe they had a difficult childhood or they've got uh, you know medical problems and you go oh okay I understand now whether that excuses the behavior or not is a different thing but the point is there's empathy if you have information about someone you're, that's that's the first step towards empathy, right? Which is necessary for society in general. And that's one of the other things about social media, the fear that it might take away empathy because you only interact via words on the text, you know, text on the screen without actually seeing someone's facial expressions. And it's much harder to be empathetic and it's much easier to misinterpret things. And so empathy is a really, uh, and I think that that's all one continuum, isn't it? And empathy for a, a person in the room, even if that, you know they're not ill, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just that you're observing their behavior and relating to them as a human being. That you need empathy to do that. And there's a kind of, there's no boundary between that. And you know, you couldn't put a line at any point that separates that from someone who's just stolen something because they have problems, you know, um, have had family problems or whatever it is that's led them to steal something and then on to the medicalization you know a disease but not those things aren't all the same but i think they are a continuum there's no place where you can say oh this this it requires empathy and that doesn't require empathy this disease is only a call i mean apart from possibly smoking but you might ask why people smoked you know it i don't know so i so i think that general the empathy and that's why that's one of the good things about the future hopefully is that if you have more media people read more and watch more films you're living inside other other people's heads well that's more. that book we were talking about on the way up here others that uh, has been uh, edited by charles fernhoff which is which i haven't read lots it. It of different, yeah, it's only just come out it's very very good lots of different people writing chapters uh sometimes fictional stories sometimes just kind of uh non-fiction sometimes poetry which is looking at different people's stories and the people that we are tom shakespeare you know talking uh, uh, about his experience selena godden talking about williams syndrome uh, colin grant talking about the fact that 
through education, even though he comes from uh, an Afro-Caribbean background, he has kind of quite a uh, middle-class voice. And so when he then wrote a book about Marcus Garvey, he had this kind of reaction against him, which was saying, hang on a minute, you're not allowed to... You know, lots of different ways right. that people can become displaced or be ignored or or judge and I think that's that's it. I've just started reading a book called Muck Mindfulness which is someone critiquing <laughs> mindfulness and saying part of the problem with mindfulness is that it detaches so much of it from the rest of all of the other reasons yeah that you may well you know that mindfulness and, and it says it, it detaches itself too much from the kind of uh, the story of capitalism and all of those other different yeah. things. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I find mindfulness. I have friends who do it. I, I run around a badminton court. You know, I, I whatever that's doing. I, I think I've got other ways of dealing with it. I'm sure there's mindfulness gurus or whatever they are who would disagree. But it does. It's ever so slightly cultish, and I'm sure a lot of it isn't. I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff, but it does feel as though it's something people are grasping at. It's almost not as though they feel they choose in or out. They sort of go, oh, that's the solution. I'm going to do that. And then all my problems will be solved. And I'm sure, absolutely sure it does help a lot of people. But I also think that you've got to ask why we have a society where you need that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, and that goes back to empathy and talking to people. And I, some, somebody is going to write lots of PhD theses on how all these things are related. So we can speculate, but, you know, the evidence is still coming in. But it is... It is a fascinating time to be human, but not necessarily a very human one in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, final question. Again, you're, you're not 50 yet. Uh, but so uh, we can't go back that far. But in terms of 10 year old you imagining the future, uh, do you have any memories of, of where you thought we would be on the 20th of July 2019? So I have a boring answer to this, but I'm going to be honest about it because I think a lot of times in answer to questions like that, the questions work for some people that don't work for others and when they don't work for you people make up the answer they think people expect to hear and I I didn't I didn't want to know I couldn't think of anything more boring when I was 10 than imagining the world in 50 years times like that's the fun of it you wait and see what happens and so I I I don't think I ever thought about it and I because I was interested in how things are now and I think if I had thought about it I I wouldn't I'd just have hoped there was more sport in it, you know? yeah. more sport and more ideas. So I didn't have this big, we're all going to the future on a journey to thing. And, and I wasn't that, you know, um, when it came, you know, so I grew up watching shuttle launches. But honestly, the first time I really appreciated what the shuttle was, was here at Latitude. I think it was eight years ago. And it was the year that um, Adam Rutherford and Nature made that video oh, that was yeah. so beautifully whole, clever, whole history, where it was an yeah. entire flight of the shuttle, but every single clip came from a different shuttle flight in order. So it yeah. started with a takeoff of the first one, and then you saw the hairstyles change, and you saw the Challenger disaster in Colombia, and then on the last morning of the last, when the last one touched down, that was the last clip. And I think it was eight minutes long, and that was the first time I understood what the shuttle had been about here in the tent just I think it's the one basically the one we're just behind now and I got it and I had never seen it till then because I just sort of grew up with shuttles you know taking off and landing in the background somewhere and I never really thought about it I was more, always much more interested in the earth than I was in space so I was interested in looking down more than I was interested in looking up yeah, I think I had early onset existential anxiety. So from the age of 10, it was very much <laughs> There'll a, be a vaccine for thing that. without, yeah. Helen <laughs> um, Chesky, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Sorry, I 
probably interrupted you in a previous podcast and I'm going to interrupt you again. Be sure to check out everything else going on at CosmicShambles.com. We've got other podcasts such as Science Shambles where myself and Helen Chersky chat to all sorts of brilliant scientists about their current work and Brain Yapping with Dean Burnett and Rachel England tackling questions about the brain. Exclusive blogs from top science writers like John Butterworth, Susie Gage, Dean Burnett, Ginny Smith and others. Videos, documentaries and lots of live events. The Cosmic Shambles Network is the place for people who are curious about the universe and everything it contains and things that might also it doesn't contain but we're just kind of mucking about with those ideas you know all of that stuff so two people who's uh expert well one's expert is 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 the the medical but at the same time an enormous expert also on on space and uh, also uh, an interplanetary scientist as well uh kevin fong and susie imber you've been looking at the uh, Arthur C. Clarke and hoping that I'm going to let you keep it. No, but I will get you a copy as long as prices don't go up too much now that we've uh, celebrated this book. So your first reaction was to uh, looking at the lunar base, Kevin. What, what? Yeah, I, I love the idea of a lunar base, partly because I grew up with that, you know, in the 1970s, watching S- Space 1999 on Saturday mornings and Commander Koenig and his doomed crew of people on, on Moon Base Alpha. And I've wanted that to happen, and it should have happened by now. And indeed, Arthur C. Clarke says... Why don't you have one? You should have one, albeit a modest one. Because I think that's part, Susie, of his hopes, is that when he was writing that book, he does feel that you know space has been kind of left alone for a little bit too long. It's, he, he uses this line where uh, he talks about the fact, that I can't remember who it was who said, you know, that really the Apollo missions, eventually it was like having a Rolls Royce but leaving it in the garage, you know. And uh, so do you, do you think that, if, you know, in 1986 had it all begun again had in terms of of, of of the really grand missions beyond the space shuttle that lunar base is possible yeah i think if we kept the momentum that we started back then then certainly well well before now we'd have had a lunar base but most of the technology is there already to to do it um but we didn't keep the momentum and now there's been a big gap and we're looking forward to the return to the moon which may or may not happen in 2024 <laughs> well this is it i mean i i presume arthur c clark chose this oh kevin yes well well but I, th- I used to think it was arthur c clark who said it but i'm not sure it was that they commented that project apollo was a bit of the 21st century there was an aberration it was dragged out the 21st century and it was this aberration of the 20th century it had no place being there in the 1960s but someone had dragged the future into the 1960s and it was quite a good way to think about it because of course we didn't we haven't yet been back um however when you look at the way we explored the world in the past it's always like that we go and do something dangerous usually led by a nation state uh, and and usually no one then goes back because it's bloody risky and bloody expensive for another 50 years the circumnavigation is done as well that's the other part isn't it you know it's all about being the first to go and do something and when it's done you have to think of another good reason to go back again i think that's part of the issue right no, I, I, absolutely. But, uh, you know, I, I, the moon reminds me very much of Antarctica. You know, Scott and Amundsen go in 1912, half of them die, yeah. and then no one sets foot at the South Pole again until I think the mid-19, late 1950s. And when they turn up, they turn up in a plane with jet-assisted takeoff <laughs> bottles, and they turn up, they get out, they say, hi, let's go, it's very cold, it's very barren, let's go home. <laughs> uh, and so I'm, I'm, I think... I think that by the middle of this century, we're going to be accessing the moon the way we access Antarctica today. Susie? Yeah, I totally agree with that statement, actually. I think some of the numbers that have been banded around recently for our lunar base have been a little optimistic. But I suspect in the next decade, people will be back, and in the next 20 years, we'll have people that are there for longer time periods. That's what I expect to happen. Now, Kevin, in terms of you as... Uh, oh, go on, have you got another comment there? No, He's okay. He's looking dubious there. <laughs> the, uh, 
If only people could pick up your facial expressions yeah. through microphones. <laughs> this, this is one of the things that will happen in the future. But what, I, what I wonder is, uh, in terms of the medical side of it, as you, you're a doctor as well, um, Arthur C. Clarke predicted that we would have become so health conscious, hospitals would be gagging for work and they would have to make themselves these kind of wonderful, almost you know, quite luxurious places where you wanted to go. Uh, in terms of that... Yes, this is what happens when physical scientists make predictions about biomedicine. So, so, of course, the reverse has happened, hasn't it? And why? Because healthcare has become spectacularly successful and it is a victim of its own success. Today we're looking at an ageing population that is more complicated than ever. It's never been more expensive to die than it is today. Uh, and, and so all those advances we make in medicine, unfortunately, don't really save money. They just displace the expense. So if you save someone's life today and they live longer... You still have to spend the money on them later on when they're older, more complicated, more fragile, more difficult to preserve. Uh, and so that's why actually uh, hospitals are really, really overflowing and really, really sort of overwhelmed um, by, by the demand. So he had that one wrong. You've got to forgive him something. Susie, did you capture anything else in the book when you had it? I know you've only, both of you just yeah, had a Yeah, well, we just had a quick glance, actually. But um, I love the fact that he was talking about a space station in there. So he had the idea of the space station. Um, I love the fact that he was talking about communications uh, relays. And, and in the book, it's something that's quite large. It's a communication relay these days. We're setting up CubeSats as communication relays. So, you know, something much, much smaller. But he had all the ideas there, which is super interesting when you think about the time in which this book was written. I mean, how hard in terms of the, uh, the idea of, of predicting the future? Because Arthur C. Clarke talked about that as well, you know, which is either you do it, you're so just methodical with what actually already exists that you're not really foretelling very much at all, uh, or it's just a magical possibility. Uh, and maybe, maybe, you know, a, so how do we refine our ability to project into the future of, of, of what we can deal with? Is there a way we can do it? Well, you see, I'm always stunned by Arthur C. Clarke's prescience, really. You look at 2001, Space Odyssey, and it is like a roadmap for where we are today in human spaceflight. Because what happens in that? A Pan Am clipper, a commercial spacecraft, flies a bunch of NASA astronauts up to a commercial space station, from which then they embark upon their government-funded deep space exploration. And we're kind of on the edge of that now. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, between them are sort of kind of promising us that. What I'd love to know is that if Arthur C. Clarke were around today, whether he would still be as good and still be as, you know, apparently prescient about the future. Because my sense is that the future has never been more difficult to predict. I think that this, the age of acceleration, where change is driven not so much by physical limitations and the physical science and the material science, which, which so dominated Arthur C. Clarke's vision to the future, but instead is driven by digital technology. I think it's never been more difficult. I think that this is the age of uncertainty, the age of acceleration, and I think it's much harder to make those predictions. I would be really fascinated to see if Arthur C. Clarke wrote a book called 2039, if it'd be anywhere near the mark. Also, he has a lot of what might be called, you know, there is a level of post-war optimism. You know, the story of the Sentinel is the Sentinel, isn't it? Which is where, which basically explains 2001 to some extent, which is a, a, a creature that is able to, or, or has a drive to, to go to an object beyond its own atmosphere and reaches that pillar that then sends a signal and the alien life forms go, oh, this is interesting. Here is a creature with aspirations. Maybe we will go and visit them. And now I wonder if at the same, you know, it turns out that creature also, it's not all just 
he was a great believer, wasn't he, in, in sort, I guess what you'd call moral evolution. You know, the advanced civilizations tended to be very benign and sort of helped sort of, you know, grandfather you in into cosmic society. And, 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 and I, I guess that that was an extension of what one might see in post-war, you know, the post-war world where everyone was working out that tearing each other apart with wars was a bad idea. I'm not sure that you would have the same sense of optimism today. And that's the interesting thing. Susie, anything to add to that in terms of the optimism? That's a brilliant answer, actually. Um, I think what's changing, actually, if you think about certainly the, the space industry, is the rise of commercialisation. So now we're thinking about how to exploit what we have. We've turned into an era where if we're going to the moon, what can we bring back? What can we exploit about that environment for our own wealth and benefit? And a bit less about kind of brave new world exploration. OK, Mars will be that if we eventually get there. But I think in terms of lunar, lunar work, it's people are thinking about, you know, how can we use this to our best advantage? And that doesn't necessarily always bring out the best in our collective human selves, I think. See, I find almost the contradiction looking at the work of Jeff Bezos, which is one side of it is here is this person with tremendous aspirations for the human race to, to so go into are, space. And then the other side of it, of you also have... No, but the other side of it is you have the, those who work for him who make those enormous fortunes are not particularly... You know, the, the treatment's not great. And so you, you, you see both a grand ambition for humanity, but actually on the Earth itself you go, eh, you know, there's problems here. Well, look, what, what, what has the digital technology of the age, age made? It's, it's made the unintentional Bond villain, hasn't it? I mean, you've got these people who are wealthier than most of the countries of the world who have the capacity through the whim of, of the way that they use their fortunes to massively affect the way our world turns. And that has been problematic. And what I find fascinating right here in Arthur C. Clarke's book is this little thing. This is, there's a little caption on, on a photograph. It says, entertainment moguls treat today's audiences as if they were all the same. In 2019, entertainment will be far more individualised. I mean, he's almost predicting micro-targeting and, you know, and, and the effect that that has allegedly had on our democratic process. You know, I, 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 um, I think that's really interesting, you know, that, that, that actually the 21st century has seen the creation of individuals through technology who have wealth that is so extreme that they are like nation-states in their ability to wield power. Susie, what is your view, in terms of an optimistic view of, of the future, from your perspective, within the next 50 years, what would you most like to see in terms of, if, if you were now, you know, Kevin and you and uh, Helen and Chris uh, and Hannah were all asked now to, to write your version of the 20th July 2069. Wow, God, that's a really interesting question. What would I write in my book? Well, you know, I'm looking at some sections as Kev's just flicking through them here. Sections on war, sections on conflict, sections on technology, sections on death. Um, I'm really an optimistic person and I would like to see um, humanity gang together much more, much less fractious. That would be my hope for the future. And maybe that is through moving from this planet to, to in a combined sense, building a colony on Mars or on the moon or something like that. You know, just something that unifies us together rather than separating us. Um, I also think that the rise of technology in our lives is really interesting. So it's been very dramatic over the last 20 years. And I can't even imagine what the next 50 years are going to look like. And when you talk to people um, who are experts in the area, they often talk about, oh, what's going to happen in the future? You know, robots or, you know, artificial intelligence. How is that going to influence our lives? I have no idea how it's going to influence our lives. But you can tell it's going to be a massive part of our future, I think. 
I think again, I think again about the fact that when he was writing that, he was imagining all of these technologies that did exist were going to be used to the full and developed at the same speed. Because I was thinking something I mentioned to Helen earlier. There's a film that's just come out in Australia, I think, called 2040, and it's how our what our climate will be like if we use all the technology that actually exists already. So it's not like looking for new solutions. It's saying the solutions are here, but we need to activate them. Uh, and it was it's been made by a director who wanted who saw how sad his children were, how you know the pessimism they had, and so he thought I'm going to make film which says we've got it here we just need to activate it how do you feel about that Kevin? I, I am optimistic I am optimistic in our ability to use the technology and science of our age for good and, and, and you know, that's kind of what we've done right so science technology generally is 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 neutral it's not good or bad it's just the way we use it and generally we've used it for stuff that is on balance better rather than worse i like to think that this schism that we're going through well you could argue is a product of us developing a technology in this case digital technology not quite understanding what it does or how to control it and what we need now is what was the equivalent of the clean air act after the industrial revolution you know polluted all our atmospheres it was a great thing the industrial revolution but gosh it made things awful you know we understood how to regulate that I think we need a very a clean air act for the for the digital age. Um, I, I I think very specifically about space that will carry on. I mean that to me is I think much more predictable. I think that I hope that our commercial partners will make access to low Earth orbit more reliable and more less risky, so that our international agencies, which will continue to exist, will be able to launch their deep space explorations of the Moon and Mars and beyond. And so I see 2069 as us being on the moon the way we're on Antarctica today. I would hope that my grandchildren, grandchildren or great-grandchildren, would be able to apply for a, a, you know, a period as a scientist on moon base alpha, you know, 2069, the way they could apply to go and be a, a postgraduate at Antarctica today. I think that we should have been on Mars by then. Um, and I hope we sort this digital stuff out. <laughs> the only thing I was going to add was that actually if you ask people what they think the next 30 years are going to hold in terms of space. Everyone says something similar, right? We're going to go back to the moon, we're going to go back to Mars. That's not very radical to my mind. Like, it's not very imaginative, is it? And actually what Arthur C. Clarke did was kind of use his imagination to think about what the future might be like. So I think actually we have to think a bit bolder than just, I agree with Kevin, we're going to go to the moon, we're going to go to Mars, but I'd like to imagine that we're able to do a lot more than just that. So we'd better go off now and talk about extraterrestrial life. That's the next uh, thing that's not dealt with uh, very much in uh, Arthur C. Clarke's book, but you can hear that other podcast after this one from Cosmic Shambles. Thanks very much, Susie and Kevin. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you for heading to Patreon and supporting us now, if you don't already, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, if you please, really helps us out. Check out everything else on cosmicshambles.com. All the upcoming events we've got, we're at the British Science Festival. Uh, The play Signals, which you may have seen at Latitude or Blue Dot or Cheltenham, is on tour in October. Lots of new blogs on the site as well. A big uh, new, our first long read feature article has gone out this week by Professor Stephen Curry uh, about... Uh, Angela Sani's book and uh, the genetics and science behind race science. Uh, do have a read of that. Uh, new stuff from Ginny Smith coming soon. John Butterworth as well. Check all that out. Science Shambles podcasts, uh, new books. You know all the stuff. Go to cosmicshambles.com. Check it out. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting everything we do at Cosmic Shambles. And we will be back next week with a new episode. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. <laughs>